All right, there we go. Hello, everyone. How's it going? Team here, and this is BXGS Weekly, episode 26, JavaScript news podcast, bringing you all the best news of the week. Um, and uh, yeah, I mean, we're doing it with a small delay today, or I guess it should have been yesterday, but uh, you know, I've been on a short vacation in Barcelona. It was quite nice. Uh, but now I'm back, and let's get started, I guess, shall we? We got uh, quite a lot of stuff today, um, very, uh, quite a large number of libraries and demos this time around and a lot of um, interesting and silly stuff. I renamed the silly stuff section to a bit, uh, you know, to expand it a bit more because there is some stuff that I want to cover that is not strictly articles or demos, but you know, fits in there. Um, I guess let's get cracking with the articles, shall we? Uh, the first article we got today is snapshot testing going beyond UI basically explores uh, what is snapshot testing, how does it actually work, and where it can be applied beyond the UI, just as the title says. It is a pretty good introduction to the snapshot testing itself, and as well, a pretty good uh, article exploring the areas where it could be applied, and how do you view the application of the uh, snapshot testing, right? So the traditional um, traditional way to do snapshot testing is the um, HTML, CSS, UI people using it, right? So you have the state, and then you have the representation of the state, which is the HTML, uh, JSX output of it. Uh, so in this case, the snapshot would be the rendering of that page, right? But then the author goes into exploration of case, okay, so we have the backend, which would be that uh, the state would be the database and the representation would be the JSON, HTML, XML, or whatever the hell you return from your API. Same goes for the mobile uh, people. Uh, in this case, again, it's the UI representation. And uh, yeah, so then it's like, what is the snapshot testing? What are the benefits? And how exactly you can use it. So if you were, um, wanting to dive into the snapshot testing more and uh, try it out in your own projects, which by the way, I like I've used it in more than one project now and it can be amazing for some things like the, you know, again, the output of any tools, command line tools or web tools, it works really, really well. So if you're wanting to get into snapshot testing, this is a good starter. Okay, next article we got is why is a Java guy so excited about Node.js and JavaScript? Uh, perspective article, I guess, or thought piece uh, from the author who worked for 10 plus years in uh, Java SE team in Sun Microsystems and at some point started writing JavaScript and Node.js. And um, a lot of thoughts, the article is quite large and I would say I, agree with actually most of them, even though, you know, I'm not exactly a Java guy. I did write some Java uh, specifically, I think mostly for Android, but uh, there is a lot of points that I would um, wholeheartedly sign basically, you know, stuff like Java is full of boilerplate, let's try again. Java is full of boilerplate code, which obscures the programmer's intention. I think this is my biggest gripe with Java actually. And uh, it's kind of, Fascinating to see that, you know, even the experienced Java programmers have the same gripe with it. Um, but yeah, you know, if you're interested in reading about the uh, Java developer experience with Node.js and uh, his thoughts on how Java compares to JavaScript, uh, why Node is exciting for him, 
then do have a look. This is a really uh, interesting article and there's some really cool things here. There's also a bunch of pretty cool uh, videos embedded. So if you're interested in, uh, you know, checking out the related uh, materials, there's also some really cool things like, you know, the talks on machine learning and JavaScript and stuff like this. Um, hello, Bakao, welcome to the stream. All right, uh, let us continue. The next uh, article we get is what's in a production web application. So this is not strictly JavaScript article. It's more of a meta article, I guess, uh, but it is really cool. So it talks about um, pushing the app in production and then growing it and changing the architecture and the deployment of the app over time as your needs change as well, right? So you start with a very simple app where you have like a client, a server, and server is basically your app and a database. And then you start scaling it, right? So, okay, database no longer, no longer quite cuts it. So you add S3 storage, and then at some point, okay, you need a content delivery network and so on and so forth. So this article actually goes, uh, this like, if you're, if you're watching this, you could see the, um, quite, quite complex um, app structure or architecture at the latest points, you know, including Elasticsearch, Kibana load balancing and all that kind of crazy stuff. And that's uh, as well, like this is accompanied by a quite interesting uh, description. So, you know, why is it needed? How is it added? How does the author came to the conclusion that he actually should add this? So if you're interested in seeing the development of the uh, sort of production app, then do have a look at this article. It does give you a pretty good um, overview, I guess, of how the production apps uh, actually evolve over time. Right, let us continue. The next article we got is the not fancy CLI output of PNPM. Uh, this is essentially a look at the command line output of the PNPM, which is the alternative to NPM and Yarn, if you never heard about it. Um, um, it is, yeah, it's basically a look on, on the evolution of the output that the tool produced and how it brings the useful information to the users, which is, I, I don't know, from my opinion, it's always interesting to see perspective like this because, you know, they give you the information about how it actually evolved, how it developed and what the users wanted to see uh, from the tool, right? Because it is a community driven tool and it's always interesting to see um, how it, you know, how it differs from Yarn, how it differs from NPM and what kind of things does it actually shows you or showed in past and shows now, for example, right? Because the uh, output of the older versions and output of the newer versions differ quite a lot. And this is well like the um, outlooks of the recursive sub packages installation and the outputs for this specific um, layouts and stuff like this, you know, so if you're interested in checking it out, do have a look, there is some, um, I, I would say pretty neat uh, things here and pretty neat ideas in the um, uh, outputs, sort of printing the, you know, warnings and errors and uh, the package installation stuff like this. So yeah, it's an interesting use case, let's put it this way. Okay, continuing, we got um, an article called How We Shaved 1.7 Seconds of Casper.com by Self-Hosting Optimizely. This is essentially a look into how uh, migrating from a third-party content delivery network to your own server could actually save you time, not the other way around. Um, which is, you know, when you think about it, it might be a bit counterintuitive, but um, actually with... Uh, 
modern, you know, HTTP2. And if you configure your server properly, obviously, you could save a lot of time because uh, stuff like DNS lookup, initial connection, SSL negotiations, and all of that, it does take quite a lot of time. It might be not, you know, incredible amount of time, but it can save you a few seconds of overall time. And uh, this is what the article essentially talks about. It talks about, okay, so they, they had the Optimizely script hosted on the Optimizely CDN, which is, you know, nice and easy solution. Then they started exploring uh, the impact of that um, hosting on their own website and came to a conclusion that, well, that's actually a bit too much. So they moved the script to their own um, asset server and uh, saved, yeah, essentially 1.7 seconds and even more with HTTP2 multiplexing, I think. So if you're interested in checking out uh, how exactly they did it and in the metrics and you know all the related info do have a look at this article it is quite good right continuing we got javascript promises with node.js a pretty lengthy article that is uh very entry level let's put it this way so if you are familiar with promises you won't find anything new in here um but if not if you're still you know learning promises or want to figure out how they work or trying to use them with Node.js and still struggling a bit. Now this article basically has everything you wanna know about promises, about Node.js, and how do you do uh, a sync task with promises? How do you chain them? How do you create promises yourself? And all the basics about promises, right? So it even goes into explaining how Node.js works, how this libuv works and, you know, event loop, sync stuff. So all the basics that you might ever need. Um, I also want to note that this is article purely about promises. So it does not talk about a sync await or anything like this. So it's just um, promises, raw promises, let's put it this way, without any syntactical sugar, just then chains and catch and all that kind of stuff. No sync await as already mentioned. But yes, if you are still uh, figuring out promises, if you're still uh, having problems with them, do have a look at this article. It might help you uh, finally figure them out. All right, next article we got is Control Your Desktop Layout with React, an introduction post to a tool called Workflow and uh, flow files for Workflow that allows you to use React and JSX to define um, how your desktop should look and then execute a script that would reshape your desktop according to this uh, workflow script, which I just think is really neat and shows again, you know, this is all of those kind of tools are really cool um, depiction of the power of JSX and React uh, sort of um, methodology approach, right? Because it's, it's, it's really awesome that you can just, you know, write a simple JSX script and then shape your uh, desktop according to the script, which is just, in my opinion, awesome. Uh, so yeah, if, if that sounds interesting to you, if you are uh, using this heavily, um, maybe you use some alternative tool, maybe you want more flexibility, then this literally gives you the power of um, JavaScript to do whatever the hell you want, including the abstractions for Emacs terminal and whatever else you might want to um, uh, resize on your desktop, which is kind of great. Uh, yeah. So do have a look uh, if that sounds interesting. All right, next article we got is dynamic app themes with CSS variables in JavaScript and JavaScript. Uh, 
So our article talks about using native CSS variables, which is um, like the variables in CSS is something that people wanted for ages, right? So if you take something like uh, SAS or less or whatever other compiled to CSS languages, they all have them for ages, right? Uh, but there is CSS variables and I actually didn't know they are quite widely supported now. So uh, the only browser that basically doesn't support them is Internet Explorer 11, which is, well, hopefully you don't have to support that. Uh, if you do, then well, there's obviously pre-compilation and you know, the pre-processors that can help you with that. Uh, if not, then all the modern browsers basically support CSS variables and you can just use them in your projects. Uh, so the author here uh, shows how to use CSS vars even with SAS. So you can actually replace SAS variables with the native CSS variables, which is, I, I mean, I'm not sure why you would wanna do this if you have SAS already, but I guess there are some use cases. So you can actually do that. And um, I guess you would wanna do that uh, if you if you if you want to allow users to change those variables um, in the in the already compiled script, right? So I guess this is how it works. Uh, and yeah, so this is basically a use case that shows how to build a React app that would use uh, CSS variables to style and theme the app, uh, including the yeah. So they use the theme options here to provide those variables and change them on the fly. The app itself is nothing, you know incredible, but it shows you that you can actually uh, style everything with just a dropdown, for example, which is kind of cool when you think about it. So if you were thinking about giving an um, option to theme your app to your users, do check this article out. It might give you a good starting point. Okay, continuing, we got React Fire modernizing React DOM, a new, um, I guess, initiative from the React team that aims to rewrite uh, the React DOM um, module and uh, make it more modern, give it better things and simplify some things and then change some things. So the um, one of the like the highlights basically is to stop reflecting input values in the value attributes. Um, that's something that people uh, wanted to see, right? Um, you can read like this references to a billion of tickets and issues within the React repo. So if, you, you know, if you're interested in details, do go ahead and read it yourself. I'm just gonna go through the outlines basically. So uh, the next uh, point is attach events to the React root rather than document root. Again, there's a bunch of issues referenced here and a bunch of related edge cases and problems that people have with it. I personally never had any issues with that, but I can imagine there would be some uh, here related to that. Right, the next point is migrate from on change to on input and don't polyfill it on uncontrolled uh, components. If you didn't know the React now um, basically polyfills all the input components, whether you try to control it or not, which can again bring some you know problems in very specific edge cases. Um, nice and welcome change. Uh, the next uh, point is drastically simplify the event system. So it seems like they just wanna overhaul it completely. And the last is probably one of my favorite things. They want to change class name to just class. This, I still from time to time try to type just class, even though you know I'm mostly writing React and I'm really used to just writing class name. Still from time to time, the writing HTML takes over and just go class equals, and then, oh no, I have to change that. And um, yeah, it is slightly annoying and it seems like they want to address that and change it to allow passing class. 
which is kind of great. So we're going to see how that works out. Uh, again, it's just um, so far the initiative and you know global overview, but uh, it is quite cool to see the movements in that area. All right, continuing, we got progressive web apps with React and Preact JS. Um, not exactly sure why it is called with React and Preact JS because the article starts by talking about hey you know so you're creating uh, progressive web apps with uh, create React app for example and there's like the service worker JS and register service worker JS file and this is how it looks this is how the cache works and so on and so forth and then it just switches to hey there is actually a Preact CLI and Preact JS which is smaller better faster and so on and so forth so we're gonna use it. Um, so I would call this a Preact tutorial actually to be honest but you know if you were interested in uh, using Preact and building a progressive web app with it uh, this article does gives you a pretty good starting point uh, so do have a look if this is what you wanted to do. Right next article we got is know what to test using this recipes node service that calls a database. Um, this is essentially a tutorial that um, walks you through uh, setup and testing of a node a script that works with a Postgres database specifically. So in this case they use the real Postgres database so you'd have to install and run it yourself which might not be ideal for some cases, but you know, uh, this is the best way to test actually things because uh, mocking databases have some edge cases when queries might behave differently, you know, and things like this. So it's always better to use the real one, especially for the end-to-end -end testing. So yeah, this article essentially walks you through the full setup on how you, uh, create the utils that would, you know, instantiate the tables, drop the tables, clean up the stuff, drop the databases and so on and so forth, close the connections, basically all that you need to run the tests and then um, the tests themselves. So if you are working with the databases and you're not completely sure how to test them, uh, I guess specifically with Postgres or maybe any other SQL database in this case, then do have a look at this article. It does give you a very good uh, overview of how exactly you do that. All right, next article we got is why I'm switching from Angular to React and Redux in 2018. This is a perspective article from the yeah, person who worked on Angular for quite some time and uh, finally decided to switch to React uh, and uh, Redux. And uh, as it says, it's not because of the hype. I'm not even sure if the hype for React is still there. It's like it's been so long out there that I think it's more of, you know, established thing at this point than a hype. But uh, yeah, there is some interesting thoughts here from, you know, from the guy who says, as I've already been developing uh, Angular for a long time and had some issues with it here and there, some edge cases and then tried using React and Redux and uh, saw that, you know, it works better for his case. So if you were uh, interested in comparing those two frameworks or look for, you know, sort of, um, <coughs> apologies, the perspective on it from the Angular um, developer, then do have a look at this article. It does give you quite a lot of, um, I would say quite in-depth thoughts on, you know, why, uh, in what cases React can be better, why uh, might you want to switch from Angular to React. And uh, yeah, um, and there's, a, there's actually quite a lot of links included to a different 
react related things that uh, you might want to learn before switching as well. So uh, if that sounds interesting, do have a look. Right as next article we got is idiomatic JavaScript backend. So um, would not call it idiomatic, but it is a very good tutorial on how to create backends in JavaScript and in a very um, object oriented manner, let's put it this way. So author is very fond of uh, using classes and object oriented programming for just about everything. So if that sounds like your cup of tea to have a look. It's basically walk you through setting up the backends uh, with you know, the server and database and everything that you might imagine. Once again, very object oriented, there's like classes for everything, the decorators, whatever you can imagine. Um, again, you know, using decorators at this stage is uh, one of the things the Babel guys were complaining about people using the things that are not yet stable in spec already in production. So maybe not for production. But uh, again, it is a three part article that does give you a good foundation, at least on how to build a JavaScript backend. So if that sounds interesting, do check it out. It is quite good. All right. Next article we got is servers serverless side rendering with Vue.js, Nux.js and AWS Lambda. A tutorial essentially on how to set up a server side rendering using AWS Lambda, which is serverless technology, right? So it is quite interesting. Um, I never actually thought about, you know, that you can or you want, you probably want to do server side rendering all the time. But how do you actually do that with uh, function as a service uh, platforms, right? So this essentially is a tutorial on how to do that with Nuxt and Vue. Uh, they also use the serverless framework, which is, seems to be like the most popular way to run serverless apps this these days, at least in JavaScript community. Uh, but yeah, it's just, you know, walk through on how you set it all up, how you do proper rendering, how you do it on server, how you serve already pre rendered stuff, how do you deploy and so on and so forth. So if you are um, heavily using AWS Lambda, if you are um, serving your static website from there, if you want to pre render it uh, off on using the uh, AWS Lambda, then do check it out. This will give you um, basically all you need to know about it. Uh, it is uses it, it, it does uses serverless JS. So you know, you have to use it as well, I believe I don't know if it's, uh, you probably can do it on your own, but it's basically gonna involve some bootstrapping uh, manual bootstrapping, right? Okay, uh, let's continue. The next article we got is how to write a Node.js uh, command line uh, interface using OpenCV with neural network models for image classification. So it has essentially a tutorial on writing a command line tool that would take an image and uh, run some image recognition on it using OpenCV. So the um, the author uses pre-built model, no model training involved. Um, yeah. Um, Essentially, if you ever wanted to build a command line tool that works with images and OpenCV, this is a pretty good tutorial that will give you just about everything you need to know about, you know, how to get the image, how to work with the image, how to throw it into the OpenCV library and how to actually get the results back. So that's also some edge case, um, or I guess, recognition tweaking with you know, like confidence levels playing around and all that kind of stuff. Um, but yeah, it's essentially a tutorial on how to build a command line tool with OpenCV. 
Do have a look if that sounds interesting. Uh, continuing, we got serverless machine learning with TensorFlow.js. So this is um, essentially a, a description, or I guess not, a, not exactly a tutorial, more of an experience description of how the author turned the TensorFlow.js Node.js function into an o Apache OpenWhisk uh, microservice, or I guess it's, it's also probably a serverless function, right? So if you didn't know the Apache OpenWhisk or IBM Cloud functions is more or less the same thing is a open source platform that allows you to run the serverless functions. And uh, well, running your own function there is relatively easy, but when you start talking about stuff like TensorFlow.js, you get into the problematic area, right? Because you cannot, it's not just JavaScript anymore. You have native library, you have native bindings that must be compiled. You have module mo models uh, that you need to uh, provide along with it and so on and so forth. So this is basically the article goes into talk um, what exactly are the problems and how exactly the author solved them. So we know how the native dependencies were fixed, how did the module files were uh, provided and so on and so forth. So if you're working with serverless functions and if you are working with um, any machine learning, really I don't think it's just gonna be TensorFlow.js, do have a look at this article. This will give you a pretty good insight into how you can turn it into a serverless function. Okay, continuing, we got an introduction to map filter reduce by making a fresh fruit salad. Um, you know, if you know how map filter and reduce work, then this article will not be something amazing for you. But um, I personally think it's a really good explanation of how map filter and reduce work based on yeah making fruit salad essentially right so you have the um very simple array with fruits and then the author goes to okay so now you can you know now we map it into uh, pieces then we filter out the peppers and then we mix it together to make a salad i think there was like a like long um a few years ago i guess there was a twitter image that basically showed the same but in you know one concise picture way simpler, way uh, transparent, but it was like one of the most uh, simplest explanations of MapReduce I've seen. So this is basically taking it to the next level and explaining filter MapReduce uh, in more advanced way, I guess. So um, yeah, if you are still struggling with them, this would probably sort it out for you at least a bit. All right, continuing, we got a complete beginner's guide to React. Just as the title says, this is a very big, very long introduction to React.js um, with that basically outlines everything you ever wanted to know about getting into React. So, you know, if you're just starting or if you're having problems with it, do have a look at this article, it will give you, um, I maybe, if maybe not the all knowledge, but like 90% of what you need to know to work with React.js. Cover it more in depth because it is really big and it is a beginner's guide, you know. So, okay, continuing, we got an uh, changing our approach to anti tracking from uh, Firefox guys. So, they looked at the uh, most popular websites, the tracking uh, related issues and privacy, and uh, decided that starting uh, from one of the next uh, Firefox versions, the tracking 
would be um, or I guess track tracker blocking in the browser would be enabled by default. So which is an awesome initiative and something that is, I think, really needed in this age and day, you know, like if you are not tech savvy, if you are uh, someone who's not using Adblock or just using a browser, right? You, you don't know anything about internet, you don't know anything about tracking. You don't really wanna be unprotected by default, which has always sounded silly to me. So they're actually changing it and uh, we're gonna see, we're gonna see how that actually impacts the web and how it impacts the advertisement industry. Because I mean, it's kind of, the thing is that the, the whole like tracking and you know performance slowdowns and everything, it is a fault of the ad industry at this point, right? We're gonna see, I'm, I'm really curious to see how all this war with, you know, for privacy actually ends up and if we're gonna see less intrusive ads and less intrusive um, track, I mean, I don't know, like do, do we actually need the tracking online? From what from the studies I've seen, actually the most of the income of the uh, guys who use ads comes from the related ads, not the personalized stuff, right? I'm not sure if there's even point in doing that since it brings so much issues and not as much income as the just relevance ads. We're gonna see how that ends up, but it's it's anyway it's a pretty fascinating initiative. All right. Next article we got is charting browser interoperability. Uh, let me try that again. Charting browser interoperability. So this is a comparison essentially of um, browser unique APIs versus cross browser web APIs and how is it you know all moving to the more unified web platform. As you might know most of the browsers have their own unique APIs, which is always annoying, especially as a web developers when you have to support multiple browsers. And ultimately we actually want to go to one unified web platform that is the same in every browser, whatever you do, right? So this is sort of the utopian vision. Uh, so this is a look actually at the, um, how are we moving towards that vision? And uh, this is actually amazing to be honest. So I never expected uh, vendors to be that eager to reduce the number of cross-browser APIs, the browser unique APIs and to um, unify them, right? So this is kind of incredible. And uh, here's, yeah, here's, there's some additional uh, figures here and additional data if you're interested in, in showing which exactly, so what browsers have most browser specific APIs and you know, how is the distribution over time and uh, what are the APIs exactly. So if the topic sounds interesting to you, do have a look uh, at the article itself. There's also the raw data available if you want it. Uh, it's really cool to see that, you know, we are indeed moving to that sort of unified web API platform. Um, yeah, okay. Continuing, we got, uh, we are rewriting Code Mirror. The Code Mirror version six is now uh, doing a fundraiser to do a complete rewrite of it with a bunch of uh, basically really great goals. Uh, it's gonna be accessible. It's gonna work on mobile phones. And there's like a bunch of other uh, design goals that they have, including TypeScript, uh, fast and loading large documents, modular, uh, allowing ambitious extensions that would, you know, be able to tap into any editor, uh, 
life cycle. So if you are using Code Mirror, or if your, I guess if your organization is using it even more so, please do back it. It looks like the Code Mirror is a really nice uh, piece of uh, piece of software. I've used it in a bunch of projects, and it's very easy to use. It does give you a pretty good editing capabilities, and I would be quite excited to see version six. And I really hope they will raise enough money to do that. But yeah, we're gonna see how that develops. Okay, next thing we got is. Firefox Nightly just shipped support for the gap property in Flexbox. No more padding negative margins mess. This is really nice and you know it's a very simple feature. Essentially it allows you to add gap between the Flexbox uh, items and uh, it just saves you a lot of pain with the whole padding margin bonkers, right? So it's always great to see that stuff. Uh, right, continuing, we got uh, Twitter blocking me because I opened too many tweets. Uh, there we go. Uh, Firefox Nightly uh, will now have better error mes messages, more details when accessing a property on undefined or null variables. So you no longer have undefined is not a property. Now you have actually, hey, X is undefined or X is null. Uh, this is something that has already been, right? The improvement that we already had. But it's still not quite as good as what they have now. So instead of just saying, hey, X is undefined, it will say, can't access property Y of it. So it actually gives you the full description of what is the problem there, right? Which is great. I absolutely love seeing the improvements on uh, error reporting. So this is like a very welcome addition and I hope uh, Chrome will have something similar coming to it as well. Okay, continuing we got, yes, this is absolutely fantastic. So Chrome DevTools, can now pin live expressions to the top of the console to monitor values in real time. So um, you can create a live expression that binds to whatever you want. Uh, so in this case, it can be, you know, like the new date to DC string. So it will actually report the live date to you or to some global uh, object. Uh, so unread emails.length, for example, you can use a button to create a live expression from it that will updates in real time and show you the real value of that thing. So it's like basically debugging uh, the value without actually attaching the debugger to it, which is actually quite damn awesome. So quite excited to see this uh, being shipped. I don't actually know when it's going to be shipped is Chrome 70. So we are now at 69, I believe, right? Yeah, 68. Okay, so it's in two versions. It's basically nightly as well. But still really cool feature and I'm quite excited to see that. All right, so next thing we got is a new fresh report for progressive web apps from HTTP archive. So you can actually see some uh, progressive web app scores and service worker control pages. Um, well, so we actually now have the uh, PVA scores, which is seems to be like median uh, 54%. Uh, which is actually quite quite nice. I mean, it's, you know, decent, let's put it this way. What I was more surprised to see is they have the service worker controlled pages is that, well, first of all, it's growing quite rapidly, but second of all, just 0.4% on mobile and 0.3% on desktop have service workers, which is kind of insane. I thought it would be way more widespread, but Apparently not really. And uh, you know, on the other hand, if you look at the um, 
one. Why don't you allow me? There you go. If you look at the uh, sort of the growth in the servers workers, it is quite rapid. So I'm hoping more people start using them at least for, you know, caching and offline fallbacks. But uh, yeah, I mean, the growth is insane. So it's like 200 and 300% on mobile and 200 on desktop. But it's still very, very tiny in comparison to, uh, well, the global volume of the websites. But yeah, right. Uh, now we are in the releases section. We got the biggest release of, well, I guess year maybe even. We got Babel 7 released after almost two years of work, 4,000 comets and over 50 pre-releases. Babel 7 is here. It got a lot of things happening underneath. So, you know, all the props to the team because they did an amazing job releasing it. And uh, yes, the, the the tips for Babel on the React rally is also quite cool. I thought it was a really great idea. Um, yeah, so if you are interested in reading through the whole uh, release notes, there is a ton of things in here and it's gotten better in just about any way you can imagine. I already talked about the fact that it dropped stage presets. You, you know, you know, if you want to test the upcoming features, you now have to include them specifically. Um, and one of the cool things uh, is that TypeScript team worked together with Babel team to allow using TypeScript inside of Babel. So you now, if you have a TypeScript code base. You can just use Babel preset TypeScript and uh, compile your code with Babel directly, which is kind of awesome. So you can, yeah, you can just use TypeScript with Babel now without any additional setup. So um, it is kind of great. Yeah, uh, if you're interested in knowing more, the links as usual is in the GitHub. So do have a look uh, yourself. There is, as I said, a whole ton of improvements, changes and uh, awesome things included. Okay. Next release we got is Enzyme version 3.5.0. Uh, if you didn't know about Enzyme, it is a React testing library. Uh, this time around, they've uh, some minor release that finally added portal support and uh, forward and create ref support, which has been around for a while. But uh, like, it's a very nice testing library if you've never seen it uh, for React. Um, but yeah, it's really, really cool to see portals and ref uh, support finally getting at it. Position some minor fixes and stuff like this. Okay, continuing, we got Bacon.js version three. If you've never heard about Bacon, it's a small functional reactive programming library. Think RxJS, but you know, smaller and simpler. It's quite nice library. I used it a couple of times uh, when the projects where I basically want to drag in RxJS, I think it was four at a time, but you know, with the RxJS six, it's way more modular and supports tree shaking. So I don't know if there's any um, reason to use bacon over it. I guess maybe if you don't want to bother with tree shaking and you just need, you know, basic operators, but it is a very nice library. So, you know, if you just want a simple, um, reactive library uh, that allows you to do like very basic things. Then do have a look at bacon. It is, well, it does basically all you want to do. And uh, some of the naming I do like more than RxJS, I think. Um, so yes, do check it out if that sounds interesting. Okay, 
Next release we got is Rollup.js version 0.65. Uh, tons of fixes and improvements in preparation for version 1.0, which should be coming quite soon. Um, including plugin hooks to watch files, experimental caching API for plugins, and uh, insane amount of fixes for code splitting, which is the sort of, you know, the holy grail of bundling basically at this point. <laughs> yeah, uh, Rollup has been an amazing tool, especially for libraries. So I'm really excited to see when the version 1.0 comes out. I mean, I'm using it already, but yeah. Okay, uh, next thing we got is GOT.js version 9.2 with uh, the highlight being experimental HTTP2 support. We already talked about GOT.js at some point. It's a really nice uh, uh, HTTP request uh, library. So if you are looking for one, do have a look here. Okay, um, next release we got is uh, OpenPGPJS 4.0, a really big release of um, encryption library from Program Mail guys. Uh, that is, uh, yeah, it's basically OpenPGP in JavaScript, which is kind of cool. So if you are looking for uh, something like this, do check it out. It seems to be pretty good. They also had recently um, an audit, independent audit uh, made. Um, on the library itself. So it's supposed to be very good and very uh, secure, I guess, is what you would say. Um, but yeah, this seems to be pretty nice. So we're moving towards more crypto in JavaScript, which is kind of great. Okay, I think that was the last update. So now we're coming to the libraries and demos section. And the first uh, library that I want to highlight today is Rich UI. Um, a UI library from the same team that brought you uh, Reach Router, which is basically accessible router. And this is uh, accessibility focused UI components. Uh, at the moment, there is not that many of them. I'm sorry, something is in my eye and it's really hard to see. There we go. Um, so it is a, um, let me try that again, accessibility focused UI library that has a bunch of Accessible components, including model, dropdown, skip, nav, visually hidden. And uh, this is probably my favorite component. Uh, it's called component component. And the idea is that you can use render props to manage state without actually writing anything. This is just incredibly cool. So you, you define a parent component, right? That wraps it uh, and says, okay, this is initial state. Then you get a set state and state as a render props, which you can then use within your components, which is just genius in my opinion. Like this is really, really cool. And it also comes as its own package. So you can just, you know, install it and use it in your own um, um, project really easily. It also comes with uh, additional methods like did mount, did update, will mount, get snapshot before update. And basically all you want to use normally so you can do it declaratively without creating your own component. So I think this would actually replace quite a lot of my codes when I start using that properly within my project. So I really, really digging in. Like this is a really cool idea, 100% support it. But yeah, like other things are also really good. So like, again, uh, the main focus of the whole library is accessibility. So if that sounds interesting, do check it out. Okay, next thing we got is prompts, lightweight, beautiful, and user-friendly interactive prompts. Um, seems to be an alternative to Inquirer, uh, but you know, like sort of more 
simpler and I guess nicer. I'm not sure, I'm, like I haven't tried it yet, but it looks quite nice. Also has like uh, validation and error messages and everything. So if you're looking for a prompting library, do check it out. I typically used Inquirer before, but I have to look at this one and see how they compare actually. I don't think there's any comparison in here at least, no. Uh, but looks quite nice. So, you know, check it out. Okay, next library we got is Babel Upgrades. Uh, it was mentioned in the release notes, but I just thought I highlighted it separately. This is actually a tool for upgrading Babel versions to v7. So instead of doing it manually, you can just run a Babel Upgrade and um, it will change whatever is needed, including your dependencies, including your test executions and in all that stuff to Babel 7 and all the related packages, which is kind of great that they provide something like this. It's kind of awesome. Okay, next thing we got is Preact Router Async. Uh, is there synchronous loading for your router components? Uh, just 440 bytes, which is, you know, the Preact ecosystem is always insane and tiny. And this is just another thing for it. So yeah it is basically a synchronous um loading for pre recruiter so very tiny super synchronous and very easy to use you literally just use import you know dynamic import okay uh so yeah if you're working with a pre recruiter and wanted to have a synchronous root loading do have a look uh seems to be very nice Next uh, thing we have is a universal PDA builder called PWA by Luke Edwards, the guy behind Polka and a bunch of other tiny libraries that are pretty performant. So I imagine this is gonna be very performant and very tiny as well. It is framework agnostic, plug and play, fully extensible, feature reach, allows you instant prototyping and allows you to generate static websites out of it uh, as in pre-rendered HTML. Uh, the idea is very simple. You have, um, uh, the idea is very simple is what I wanted to say. You have presets that allow you to build progressive web apps using different uh, frameworks. So in this case, the um, official quote unquote presets um, that are currently available are preset preact, preset react, preset svelte and preset view, which obviously allow you to create view, svelte, react and preact apps. And uh, there's a bunch of plugins available that provide you additional features, like for example, plugin TypeScript that allows you to do uh, to write your app in TypeScript, obviously, as well plugin Bubble and plugin Critters, which I have not had time to check out, so I don't know what they do, but you know, uh, basically seems like a very customizable um, approach to creating progressive web apps. Um, really curious to see how all that will develop. I mean, he's. Uh, tools are usually quite nice and very easy to use. So, you know, if, if that sounds interesting, do check it out. This is probably gonna be very cool. I'm gonna start it because I still haven't for some reason. All right, uh, next thing we got is V86, X86 virtualization in JavaScript. We already talked about it at some point as a part of, I think it was Windows 95 or something in Electron or whatever. But this is, yeah, basically a complete virtualization written in JavaScript. I don't think they use WebAssembly yet, but they do use C and assembly, like the, you know, real one, uh, or I guess x86 one, right? Uh, and it is actually like a complete virtualization solution in JavaScript that has a demos for Windows 98, Linux, Calibri, FreeDOS, Windows 1, 
Arch Linux and whatever you can imagine. There's also a list of uh, description of, you know, how it works, what actually things that work and what things that doesn't work. Um, it is insane. Like when you think about it, that you can actually have a full x86 emulation in JavaScript, um, even without WebAssembly, it's just crazy. So I think it's a really cool also project to learn about virtualization because uh, it's a very well-documented, very well-written, have tests and everything you can imagine. So if that sounds interesting, do check it out. Uh, also, you know, you can check out the demos if you want. There's like a full DOS running right here. There you go. It's like uh, there's even invade. Wait, what? Invaders? <gasps> oh, you can you can have space invaders in the browser emulated. There you go. <laughs> Perfect. Okay, um, let's continue. Next thing we got is shimports. Uh, use JavaScript modules and no. On <laughs> let's try again. Use JavaScript modules in all browsers, including dynamic imports. It's basically a shim for an import and export, very tiny and uh, works in all browsers, fallbacks to the native import if present. Um, yeah, that's basically all it does. It is really nice. So check it out if you want it from the author of Rollup. Okay, uh, continue, we got mocked env, easy way to mock process.env during uh, testing. So if you ever wanted to mock the process environment and easily restore it afterwards uh, and check out this library, it's very straightforward. So there's not, you know, no crazy things happening, but it will basically give you all that you ever wanted to do it. Okay, uh, next thing we got is VS Codium. Uh, binary releases of VS Code without Microsoft branding, telemetry licensing and all that kind of stuff. So if you are one of those people who were unhappy with uh, VS Code being, uh, even though you know it's licensed under uh, floss licensed, uh, the binaries are actually not floss, right? So they, they include Microsoft telemetry that helps them make it better and tracks you. And you know, some people are not happy about that. It also includes Microsoft licensing and uh, some uh, branding. So if you ever, and you know, if you wanted to get rid of that, you had to port, like clone it and build it yourself, which can be annoying. So those guys were like, okay, we'll just fork it and set up the Travis CI to build it for currently for OS X and Linux. They are happy to accept uh, Travis builds for Windows, which would probably involve Wine. I like, I, to be honest, I don't know how exactly it works, but um, if you know how to do that, send them a PR, they will be happy. So again, if that sounds like, you know, uh, something you would want to use, do check it out. So basically you have releases here and you can just download pre-built binaries for uh, VS Code versions that don't have any Microsoft uh, stuff, which is nice, I guess. You know, I, I'm using the official one. I don't mind giving them some telemetry if that helps them make it better product. And, you know, they've been delivering incredible updates over time. So... I don't mind a bit of uh, sharing my anonymous data with them. But yeah, you know, if you are the kind of guy who wants everything completely floss, then well, there you go. Have a look at it. Okay, next thing we got is root again. Define your API and single page application routes in one place and then use them everywhere. 1.1 kilobyte of sites. The idea is super simple, you know, most of the time when you write apps, you define your routes twice at least, right? So you define them on the server side where you have the actual routes and then you use your client side uh, request library to request those routes. So you have to use them actually a couple of times, which is annoying. 
Uh, and this library abstracts that, so you actually define the roots in the one file and then import them and use them both in your server side and in your client side by generating the uh, root using the root name and then some parameters if there are any. So it seems pretty straightforward. So, you know, if you are doing that, if you need that, if that sounds like something you would use, do check it out. It seems to be quite nice. Okay, next thing we got is node telnet client. Simple telnet client for Node.js. Uh, yeah, basically the description says everything is a telnet client. You can use it programmatically and uh, you can do basically whatever the hell you want with the telnet. Uh, if you are using it for whatever reason, um, do check it out. It might help you um, automate it, I guess. Okay, next thing we got is libnpm-publish. Uh, Node.js library for programmatically publishing and unpublishing npm packages official one i guess um i'm to be honest i'm still surprised npm doesn't have any programmatic api like complete programmatic api because when i was writing exaframe and i needed to pull things from npm like the plugins and extensions i had to basically use command line because apparently it's yeah there's it's not does not exist so it's it's really cool to see that they at least did one module for it maybe they start doing more and at some point we have libnpm that supports everything that will be really nice and really helpful in some cases but uh, yeah if you wanted to publish your packages programmatically do check this out it seems to be quite nice okay next thing we got is rxviz a really really cool uh, rxjs visualizer and uh, basically animated playground for rx observables basically looks like this it generates us generates SVGs from your uh, RxJS code that you can copy, save, share, whatever the hell you want to do with them, including um, different things like, you know, higher order observables with actually, you know, fork and everything. It is very fancy, looks very nice. So if you are doing any RxJS based uh, presentations, this seems like a tool to use for that. Right, next thing we got is React footnotes, that simple footnotes in React. Um, very simple component to generate footnotes, uh, very easy to use and produces quite nice looking footnotes. Um, the usage is quite simple. You generate the footnotes and then you uh, get the footnotes by the index and that's basically it. Again, using render props, which seems to be the, I mean, this pattern is amazingly flexible. You can do so many cool things with it, but yeah. There you go. Okay, uh, next thing we got is autodot, a TypeScript uh, package for, or I guess type, um, written in TypeScript. It's a command line tool for managing dot files. Um, I'll be honest, I currently manage my dot files in a completely terrible way. I have my dot files repo on GitLab as a private repo, and then I just clone it and run a make file that links everything doesn't really work that well because I've been too lazy to set it up. So I'm looking for a system that will essentially do it for me. And maybe this is what I want. I don't know. I haven't had time to check it out, but it looks interesting. So it has a bunch of different um, things that it can do, including synchronization and bootstrapping and all that kind of stuff. So, you know, if you're looking for a system like this to check it out, it seems interesting. Right, next thing we got is rollup plugin Lodzor with zero in there, an ill-named rollup plugin that makes code splitting just work. Here's the cool part, even with web workers. So code splitting in rollup works 
fine and there's like a bunch of plugins for that, but it is a bit tricky to set up and even more trickier if you use web workers. Well, this plugin is essentially a magic plugin that makes it just work even with workers. So if you know, if you're using Rollup and if you're working with uh, service workers, then do check it out. This seems to be doing a great job in uh, doing the, um, yeah, code splitting and uh, code loading uh, easy. Okay, next thing we got is Neutralino JS, um, alternative to Electron JS, and uh, I really like the idea behind it. It basically aims to allow you to build uh, near native apps, let's call it this way, in browser. So the idea is very simple, like um, in Electron and NVJS or whatever, you typically have the, um, you have to install the Electron itself, right? So the, each app comes with its own Electron instance, with its own node instance, and there's like a huge overhead. So there's been a lot of talk in the community about having something that is independent, like you have a server that runs something and then the browser can just communicate with it. Um, so this is exactly what they did. You have this Neutralino.js server that runs independently in OS and provides the JavaScript API and then you can use Neutralino.js in the browser that will talk to the server and provide you, you know, file system access, kernel access, whatever. It is a bit scary that your browser can do that, but you know, I'm kind of curious how they go around the security issues, but I really like this approach because this means you just install the Neutralino server once and then every app can just use it. You don't have this huge electron overhead. Um, hey Dragon, uh, have you seen this? Yes, I have seen this. It looks really, really cool. We can talk about it at the very end. I don't remember. I don't think I've included it because it's not JavaScript, but let's talk about it at the very end of the podcast. Okay, let us continue. Next thing we got is FastPack. Uh, pack JS code fast and easy. So another JavaScript code bundler um, that aims to be very fast and very simple. Uh, sub one second time to bundle and sub 100 millisecond incremental rebundle for a medium sized apps that is around 1000 modules. And it actually already at this stage allows you to do post processing with, you know, Babel, Uglify, whatever the hell you can imagine seems to be quite nice. So there doesn't like I have not tried it myself, but it seems to be you know, way faster than Webpack or Parcel or just about anything out there with, um, you know, initial building and persistent cache and uh, with watch mode, it is just insanely fast. So if you're looking, if you have a really big app, then um, try it out, maybe that's your thing. Okay, next thing we got is Vexond, an extensible web browser with beautiful UI. So essentially what it is, is an Electron app uh, with a React UI uh, that sort of is a web browser that you can change however you want. I'm not sure if it has, like if, if that's a browser I would use, but as a learning project, so, you know, the project that you can take, disassemble and see how exactly it works. This is a really good one. So it's pretty well documented, has a lot of uh, different things. As a browser, I'm not sure. I think I would still prefer Chrome, but uh, the cool part is that they actually have a partial support for Chrome extensions from Chrome Web Store, but you know, I guess their Electron's running on Chromium, so that's not that surprising. But yeah, check it out if that sounds interesting. Okay, next thing we got is Atomico, a small library to work with web components. Uh, this looks a lot like 
basically react like library that produces web components as an output essentially it also has jsx that you use to write the uh, uh, markup and uh, other than that yeah it seems pretty straightforward pretty nice so if you're working with web components do check it out it looks pretty cool okay next thing we got is es verify a program verification for javascript ecmascript Unfortunately, there's not that many uh, docs for it right now and doesn't really explain too much what it does, but there's a basic example. So the idea, at least from what I gather from the current documentation is that you can use uh, requires and ensures function that describe the current function behavior and the yes verify after that will actually generate test cases and make sure that those um, uh, those uh, those requirements are actually for fulfilled, right? So in this case, they use the max function as an example. So the use requires a type of A and type of B to be a number and ensures that the result is bigger than A, right? So um, I don't know why React team doesn't want to come even close to web components. Uh, well, web components have issues, right? First of all, we already talked on one of the podcasts uh, web components, um, but can I use web components are still not very well supported. So if you look, the Firefox still only has them behind the flag. Okay, they're actually coming in Firefox in 63. So like it's nightly now, finally flag is not turned on. Safari is still partial supports. Um, Edge doesn't even support them yet. And there's no info, I guess, on when they will support it. So it's, you know, it's it's very, on one hand, it's really cool technology. On the other hand, uh, for whatever reason, browser vendors are not really fast about getting it shipped. I'm not sure what's the political reason behind it. But uh, the, the other thing is the Shadow DOM, right? So you have the Shadow DOM is a part of uh, Web Components. There you go. So again, not even supported in Firefox, which tells you a lot, I guess, you know, I guess the uh, Chrome guys were pushing it a lot and they have it for a long time, but everyone else doesn't seem to be very excited about it. Oh, Shadow Long V1 is actually shipped in, in nightly. Okay. So at least, yeah, you know, so the support is not quite there yet. Um, yeah. There are libraries that allow you to compile um, React to web components. So it's like, yeah, yeah, exactly. Polymer is the Google's thing. So Chrome is, you know, they're working closely with the Chrome team. So, I mean, I guess at some point we'll get there, but um, I don't know. I guess, you know, actually just using React seems to be a better approach right now or any other framework, to be honest. But yeah, but we'll get there at some point, maybe. We'll, we'll see how that develops. <laughs> All right. Uh, continuing, we got this neat website is called which licenses I have. And uh, you can literally type in the name of the package. And this will show you what kind of licenses does it includes as you know, from the dependencies and everything. So you can actually know uh, your sort of license dependency tree and what kind of you know, if you need to disclose anything or anything like that. It's a bit slow because you know it gathers, it goes through all the included uh, dependencies and shows you everything. Yes, I don't have my JavaScript blocked. Why is it so freaking slow? Come on, chop chop work. Well, I mean, okay. At some point, it shows you the list of licenses, um, and you can basically have. There was a command line tools like this as well, so maybe uh, you know, 
unless you just want to use browser for that, you might want to pick a command line tools, I guess. Come on, just, I, there we go. Uh, no, come on. Now you can work, right? There we go. Okay. But you already loaded it, cache it. There we go. Okay. So yeah, React is, uh, and everything else is MIT licensed nicely because thank you, Facebook, for relicensing it to MIT. Okay. Continuing, we got React.lazy example. So this is something I didn't know about, but uh, React has this React.lazy thing that is now merged into master. I don't think it's been released yet. But uh, the idea is that basically you can create uh, lazy components very simply, like async components that would fetch something and only then return the render. And this is an example of how you can actually use it including the live version where you can actually uh, see it. So whenever, uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's really, really cool that you can now do this and actually have, uh, yeah, it is amazing. This is just, you know, the fact that they are adding it into the React core along with the React suspense makes it so much simpler to work with the synchronous stuff. So if you're curious about how React Lazy works, do check it out. This seems to be a quite nice uh, example. Okay, continuing, we got Tesseract.js, a pure JavaScript OCR for 62 languages. Um, if you never heard about Tesseract, it is a C uh, project, C, C++, I believe, that uh, does OCR for just about any language. And uh, this is an mscript import, essentially for, um, Tesseract C++ API. At the moment, it is compiled to ASM.js, so not WebAssembly yet. We're gonna see if they are gonna port it to WebAssembly. It's gonna be interesting to see if there's any performance improvements in that. But if you are looking to do OCR right in the browser, then, well, you can use that. It works quite well. Um, Bad results. Okay. I mean, we actually, I used it in a couple of projects, but we had a quite high quality uh, scans in English. We had a decent result. So it was some like mild errors, but you know, it wasn't too terrible. I guess it does depends on the quality of the input data as well, quite highly. But um, yeah, you know, if you're looking for something like this, test it out, maybe it will work for you. All right. Uh, continue, we got front-end checklist, the perfect front-end checklist for modern websites and meticulous developers. This is essentially, uh, yeah, checklists of things that you have to add to your website's modern website to be um, good, I guess. I mean, I'm not sure if I would use the word good, but uh, it's basically a list of best practices, right? So if you are shipping a website, do check it out. Maybe you'll find some things that you missed, forgot, or um, yeah. Yes, that plus Lighthouse, <coughs> apologies. Lighthouse is absolutely the tool to use to get the all the best uh, modern best practices outlined for you. That's, that's absolutely true. Okay, right, that's it for the libraries and demos. Now we have our uh, interesting and silly stuff section. And the first thing that I wanted to uh, show and talk about is this uh, state of the web survey had this question, should browsers still allow users to disable JavaScript, which um, to me sounds absolutely bonkers. An answer would be yes, it is my browser and I should control how the hell it executes stuff. But um, apparently, 
um, 61% of people think that, or I guess developers, right? Because the state of the web survey is mostly answered by the developers. 61% uh, of people think that browsers should not allow users to control JavaScript execution, which is as a person who runs U-metrics that literally blocks 90% of JavaScript right away, I find this to be a bit bonkers. And uh, I recently actually disabled JavaScript execution on my mobile in the uh, browser that I use because that made the web mobile web like 20 times faster and nicer to read because there's no longer advertisement. All the good websites do the server side rendering. So I actually get the content first and um, I no longer download 2 million garbage, you know, ads and CSS that are not really needed to render things. So yes, please don't take away my uh, ability to, 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 to disable JavaScript. That sounds like a terrible thing. Like, I mean, uh, you know, we still have extensions that are pretty complex and allow you to control JavaScript execution. But the fact that some people think that you should be allowed to just, you know, not allowed to disable it is kind of bonkers, at least to me. I don't know. What do you guys think? Do let me know in the chat or in the comments if that is something that and if you think that users should not be allowed to disable javascript do let me know why i would be very curious to hear the reason okay next thing we got is this um amusing thread uh, from a former tesla employee who worked on their it infrastructure uh, and his nda now expired and he's posting about the horrors of working on tesla factory and tesla it and tesla uh, cars and you know the way that their servers and apps work so if you're curious this is absolutely terrifying but the thing is that i am actually like i don't know how true this is but you know from my experience working and talking to enterprise um, companies and to people who work in enterprises this seems to be well way way too close to be fake <laughs> it is hilarious to read and absolutely terrifying okay Next thing we got is a couple of, no wait, the first we got, oh yeah, there was this whole uh, Lerna story. So yes, Lerna, a popular tool for managing uh, JavaScript projects with multiple packages, has added an MIT license blocking a variety of companies uh, from using the future versions. So um, they like the, there was this pull request from the um, uh, James Kyle, I think it was, Yes, um, who added this additional clause to MIT license that said the following companies cannot use Lerner anymore because they um, collaborate with the ICE thing in the US and there was the whole like, you know, children situation, which is absolutely abysmal. And the thoughts about, you know, uh, not supporting those companies is, um, okay, no, how do I put it? So, uh, protesting against the IC doing this to children is something that I think is good. Doing it in this way, I don't think it's it's productive, right? Okay, so those companies work with ICE, but it doesn't mean they support ICE. Plus there is, it's, it's never that simple. So the thing is that they've added this clause to the license of learner and uh, this essentially, first of all, this made it to be not just, so there was no longer MIT license, right? Because this is not how MIT license work. This is no longer an MIT license at this point. 
The uh, next thing that happened is that turned out that, for example, Microsoft um, has a lot of packages that depend on Lerna, like TypeScript, like VS Code, like a bunch of other packages that are widely used in JavaScript community. And Microsoft was like, well, damn, we cannot no longer use Lerna, so let's drop it and try to figure out how do we proceed from here. And there was a lot of backlash, as you would imagine, because you cannot just enforce changes like this to um, quite a lot of companies who actually contribute to JavaScript community a lot, even though, you know, they might have some ties to YCE that is bad, but it's, it's, oh man, it's just such a weird decision to even merge it in the first place. So um, I think a few hours later, essentially, they reverted, or it was a day later, actually, they reverted the commits and restored the unmodified MIT because there was too many problems related to that. Um, if you're interested to have a look at the whole, you know, thread, there is a really good write-up from the maintainers of the Lerna and why did they, you know, why they merged it in the first place, why they reverted it afterwards and the whole like thought process but it just shows you that you cannot say, hey, this company is bad because they collaborate with these guys. There is so much more to this. And, you know, especially those huge companies like Google, Facebook, Microsoft, it's never just, hey, they are bad because they are working with IC. So we just restrict them from using that. And then it turns out they are like, you know, they're actually producing half of the JavaScript ecosystem at this point. So... <laughs> It's quite interesting. It was quite interesting to see the whole thing debacle. Uh, but yeah, do have a look if you're interested. Okay, next thing we got something a bit more lighthearted. We got a couple of comic strips. Uh, first one is programming languages, humans. I found the JavaScript bit to be absolutely hilarious. Um, oh, come on. There you go. So it's a very sad red eyed guy with a uh, carrying a bag of NPM packages and uh, shackled by uh, Internet Explorer, which I think is a pretty good description of the current JavaScript. Man, I can't wait for the day when IE11 just dies. <laughs> but just just check them out. Those are really, really like really good depictions of other languages as well. So if you ever written any other, you know, if you ever work with any other languages, they are, you know, you probably will like those. And the other one is from the same monkey user guy uh, building a raft with no specs, no funding, no QA, no market research, no deadline and no demand. And uh, I think the no demand strikes it too close to home. That's been done too many times in, by me as well. So it's like, it's great. It, it's awesome. Okay, uh, continuing, we got amazing threads on r slash sysadmin subreddit. What's the hardest you've ever noped out of an interview? So this is not specifically JavaScript. It's more of a sysadmin stuff and, you know, administrating and IT infrastructure. But just, just read through it. There is so many awesome things that are just absolutely bonkers. And I, I, I don't know. I guess I was lucky. I never had any experiences like this. But holy shit, some of that stuff. It's like, yeah, the one in the, the guy who started the thread, his experience was, well, we run credit card terminals and process the payments, but we are different because we run third party apps on credit card terminals. Um, I don't know about you, but that sounds absolutely insane to me. There is just so many security issues related to that. I guess you can do it properly, but 
it sounds so hard and so complicated and so like you had to have like two million fail safes to not allow those third-party apps to just steal everything. <laughs> but yeah, just just having a look, there is some really cool um, stories in there. Those are gonna feel a couple of hours that you can, uh, you know, if you, oh, no, that's not what I wanted to do. Okay, let me close that. Um, we wanted to have a look at sketch to code and for whatever reason, it seems to be a bit broken. They, they had an uh, um, um, they had an article announcing it actually somewhere. Sketch to code, I, um, was it this one? No, it wasn't this one. There wasn't, I saw an article from the Microsoft guys that uh, essentially outlined the whole thing, but I cannot, uh, no, what, why do I use is what I want. Uh, was it this one? Channel nine. Yeah, I think, I think, nope. Was it this one? This is experiments as well, right? Okay, we can, we can check this one out. So maybe mutes and um, the idea is that you can literally uh, sketch something on a paper, then take a photo of it and um, the sketch to code platform using machine learning will actually transform that into an actionable app. So like, yeah, like I, they had a, they had a really cool article. There was like a demo in there basically that explained it pretty well, but yeah, there you go. That's a, uh, oh man, they had said so much better. I don't know, but whatever, you know, if you, if that sounds interesting, do check it out. I think it's really cool. I'm not sure how the quality of code that it produces is and you know how exactly it works, but it's a really nice experiment, like really, really cool. Okay, no, but it's not design, right? It still is just generates the, your, like, I think people, uh, people overestimate the ability of AI to produce unique things, right? You hire designers, you hire experts when you want to produce unique experience, right? So unique design, unique UX, unique workflow, unique functionality. AI is really good, at least at this stage in time, right? AI is really good when you fitted a lot of the existing things, it will give you something very similar and very generic, right? It will give it to you really fast. It will produce a really good result. Most likely it's gonna be like 90, you know, 95, 98% of quality. Let's put it this way, but it's not gonna be unique anyway, right? So if you want to make something that is that, stand, that stands out, that is, uh, special, you are going to have to hire designers, you're going to have to hire UX designers, you're going to have to hire developers, feature experts, domain experts anyway. So at this stage, UI, uh, AI will not replace people when you want to create a unique thing. If you just want to boilerplate something and make something generic that just works, then yeah, sure. But uh, not for unique experience. Okay, um, that's actually it from my side. That was all that I wanted to show. Uh, if you guys have anything that I have missed or you think, uh, or you know, uh, you have anything else you wanna share, you wanna ask maybe some questions, throw them into the chat now, you have a couple of minutes. If not, then uh, we can stop it right here and go have a rest of the awesome Sunday. Uh, thank you. <laughs> I, I don't know if you're talking about my podcast or the sketch to code. <laughs> uh, 
Uh, any new projects you're working on? There is a project I'm working on. I'm not ready to show it yet, but I'm hoping to ship it within the next couple of weeks and then I'm gonna announce it here on podcast. Hmm? Uh, the real-time interaction is so much better than YouTube. Absolutely, I think the Twitch is the place for the real-time interaction. That is, um, that is not even arguable. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, Dragon, there is a project. Uh, there's a project management tool that I'm working on uh, that I'm quite eager to show, but it's not quite complete. I think I need a couple more weeks to finish it, and then I'm gonna show it off, guys, and uh, hope that you will like it. It's probably gonna be open source as well at some point. We'll see how it goes. Okay. Any other questions, uh, things that you want to say or ask or um, show off, whatever, your libraries that you coded, projects that you coded? Um, yeah, also one note, I am basically back from vacations. I am going to switch into my normal working mode. So we are going to have our Wednesday coding live streams again with proposals and everything. Yes, BXJS is coming back. This is exactly what I'm saying. So probably this Wednesday, we're going to start again covering our uh, closing our proposals um, from our proposals wrapper. So if you're interested, Wednesday, 8pm uh, Berlin time as usual, or 7pm Berlin time, I don't remember. I, it's been so long since I've did one of those that it's been uh, quite long. Yeah. But yeah, basically Wednesday, we're gonna we're gonna do that. Okay, um, any other questions, um, suggestions, things to discuss? Or I'm gonna go have my lunch. I haven't eaten anything yet. Hmm. All right, doesn't seem to be the case. So that was BXGS Weekly episode 26. Thank you guys very much for watching. Thank you for staying with me. If you have any questions, suggestions, or things you wanna see covered here, throw them into the GitHub repo, Twitch chat, or Discord server or whatever the hell you want. I will be more than happy to cover your own works. Thank you for watching. Thank you for your continued support. Have a nice rest of the Sunday or rest of the week. And I see you next time. Bye.